We're singing that last song. The lyrics, the lyrics that we were singing, there's no other name like yours, Jesus. And something struck me that, and, and I think Eric was kind of hitting on it just a little bit. I want to speak directly to anyone who may be here today who in your heart of hearts you struggle with this whole thing. This idea of religion, this idea of God, this idea of Christ. I just want to ask you to consider why is there no other name like Jesus? I would submit to you, and I I hope you would know by experience, that that name is polarizing. We live in the South. Most of our lives, it's been pretty routine and okay to talk about God. You can say things like, yeah, I have faith. I go to church. I believe in God. People don't necessarily bat their eye at that. The moment you say, Jesus, you will get a reaction. The moment, if you're bold enough to say, I believe in Jesus, there is a reaction to that. My question to you is, why? Why is there no other name like His? And what I submit to you for your consideration this morning is, if there is no other name by which people are saved, then there is no other name by which the powers of hell will turn on than that of Jesus. There's no other name by which all of this spiritual realm that we can't see that is evil and bad would try to get people to not believe in that name, to laugh at that name, to turn from that name, if that name belongs to the one person who can save people. There is no other name like that of Jesus. Father, this morning, I pray that You, the glorious Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would give in this place the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of You. And I pray, God, this morning that You would do a work to open the eyes of the hearts of everyone here, that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, so that we, every person in this room, could know the hope of Your calling, the wealth of Your glorious inheritance among the saints and the people that belong to You, and that they would know the immeasurable greatness of Your power toward all who believe according to the mighty working of Your strength, the same power that You exercised in Christ, raising Him from the dead and seating Him at the right hand in the heavens. Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. What comes to your mind if someone were to talk about the power of God? Whether you're religious and Christ follower and go to church or or you're really not, what what would come to your mind if someone was just to say the power of God? My thought is that your mind immediately is going to go to that, this, this miraculous, to the loud, the visible, the thunder, the lightning, the miracles. If you know the Bible, you might go to the Old Testament, you might think of the parting of the Red Sea. You might think of the flood over all the earth. You might remember the story of a man named Daniel being thrown into a den of lions and all of the lions' mouths being shut. You may think of those things. In the New Testament, you may think of the great displays of the power of the Holy Spirit and miraculous gifts and miraculous works. And let me say to you that if your mind goes there, absolutely, those are displays of the power of God. But I want to make a case to you this morning that that is not the highest acts of the power of God. I would make the case to you this morning 
that the greatest acts of the power of God are often quiet, initially invisible, internal. I want to make the case to you this morning that if any of us are to be saved, it must be by the power of God changing our hearts. And I want to make the case to you this morning that that is the greatest miracle you could ever be a part of. People don't go to heaven because they experience a physical healing. People don't go to heaven because they see external powers displayed. People only go to heaven if the power of God has changed their heart and brought them to new life. I'm not discounting the external glorious works of God. I want those in my life. I want those in this church. I want those in your life. But I do not want us to overlook the greatest acts of power. Specifically, the, this morning, what we just read and what I want us to talk about, what I just prayed for us and what Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God that goes toward those who believe. And it is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Understand what that is saying. That if you believe in Christ, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. Now what does that look like? What does that mean? How is that power exercised in us who believe? How is the power of God exercised in the lives of those of us who believe? And I submit to you this morning, it's not always what we think. And so I've chosen this one, really one verse that I'm focused on this morning. John 16, And I will tell you how I came across this verse for this morning. Someone in our church is going through a difficult time. I wanted to encourage them. This passage came to mind. I copied it off my phone. I texted it to them. And after I sent the text, I felt like God said that wasn't just for them. And immediately I was like, oh, that's, that's the text for Sunday. John 16, Jesus speaks, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this one verse, we see a promise from Jesus that He will exercise the power of God in our lives. And if you just read the verse, you might, go, you might skip right over that and you might not go, oh, that's talking about the power of God because you might go and look for the miracles. This is talking about the power of God in your life. This is talking about the power of God that He will exercise in your life when you believe in Jesus. And I want to show you three ways in which Jesus is talking about that power. If you're a note taker, we have some worship guides that are on the back table. Hope you picked one up. If it'll help you to fill in the blanks as we go through, I invite you to do that. As has already been mentioned, but let me say again, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we would love to gift you one this morning. They're on that back table. Kids' Bibles and uh, regular Bibles, you can grab one of those up, and that's our gift to you. God's power to those who believe in Christ Three ways in which I want you to see this in this one verse. Number one, the power to you from God in Christ is stability amid chaos. Stability in the midst of or amid chaos. The previous verse, to give us some context of what is happening in this passage, Jesus is nearing the moment where He's going to be arrested. And he is speaking to his disciples. These guys were more than just his disciples. They were more than just his family. They were his friends. These men had been together now. Jesus had called them together for over three years. And they had spent a lifetime worth of events 
and activities in those three years, and they had bonded, and they loved Jesus. And Jesus looks to them and He says, guys, listen, it's almost time. You're going to leave me. You're going to be scattered. And I imagine that those guys did what Peter vocalized. Peter was the one, he was always kind of the the brash one that would just talk. But I imagine every other one of those disciples said the same thing in their heart that Peter said out loud. Never! I will never leave you. Jesus, I will be with you to the end. No matter what they do, no matter, no matter what they try to do, I will be with you. Within a matter of hours, they all leave Him. Now I want you to think for a moment what it was like for those disciples. They thought this man was the Messiah, which He was. But they thought He was the Messiah that was going to bring about a worldly kingdom All of a sudden, he's arrested like a common criminal. He is put on trial. He is murdered. They don't even have the boldness to go with him. They leave. They go home. They're scared. They don't want to be arrested. They don't want to die. Now imagine them in their homes. Imagine how they feel. Imagine the confusion. Imagine the fear. Imagine the shame. On top of all of that, they're scared for their own lives and they feel ashamed that they left Jesus. What did Jesus tell them though? I'm saying this to you now so that you will have peace then. He's telling them there's going to come a moment where you're going to leave me and you're going to scatter and you're going to need to remember what I told you. And if you will remember what I told you, you will have peace. Church, I submit to you that that is the power of God. God has so empowered His Word to be the one stabilizing truth on this earth. How how many people claim to have truth, right? How many people claim to have the way to life? How many people in this world say, if you will just do this diet or do this exercise or put your money in this plan or if you will believe these things or if you will live this lifestyle, you'll have a happy life. We all claim all kinds of truth. By the definition of truth, there can only be one. Because anything that's opposed to truth is a lie. We don't live in a world of relative truth. When you go to the bank to pull out money and you say, I want to get $100 out of the bank, they don't say, well, I'm sorry, I don't feel like you have $100 in your account. You're like, I don't care, I do. And they're like, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me, so I'm not going to give it to you. It doesn't work that way. Truth is truth. There's one stabilizing truth in this world. There's one thing that can give you peace in your chaos, and it is God's Word. That's power. That's power when you know this Word and in the moment when your chaos hits, when you're frightened and you're confused and you're ashamed, that you remember what God said and there is comfort in your heart. That is the power of God to you in Christ. It is the same for you as it was for the disciples. But the peace doesn't stop there. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Secondly, the power of God... In Christ to you is peace with God. Not just peace in your circumstances, but peace with God. There is a greater peace that will be yours in Christ than even peace in the midst of your circumstances. I want to ask you another question. Only for you to answer. What is of greater value to you? To have peace in the midst of your circumstances or to have peace with God? Do you flee to Christ so He will straighten your life out? Or do you flee to Christ so He will give you God? 
I'm not saying you can only have one. I'm saying that, I'm saying that not just that you can, you can only have one, but I'm saying to you that one's greater than the other. And sometimes we get those mixed up. Sometimes we want Christ to have peace in our circumstances. The greatest peace that Christ gives us is peace with God. If you have a Bible, if you would go to Romans chapter 5 for a moment in the New Testament and look at the very first verse of Romans 5. And we're going to look at a few places in Romans this morning. But Romans 5.1 says this, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So two questions, asking a lot of questions this morning. Why do you need peace with God? And secondly, how do you get it? The answer to the first question is, every single one of us in this room, we have done morally wrong things. I don't think that's news to anyone. We have done things that are wrong. Things have been done wrong to us, but we have done wrong things. And when we do wrong things, we have broken the law, the sin. We have broken the law by sinning, and we have sinned against God. And because God is a just God who does justice, those sins have to be dealt with. Now, immediately, there are those who would say, why? Why does sin matter? Why, why do those things have to be dealt with? But you and I know the importance of a just system of government. None of us want to live in a place where there is injustice, even though we know that we do. But we want just laws, and we want good judges who will convict wrongdoers and set free the innocent. We desire that. We want that world. If we see a corrupt judge who looks at someone who is guilty and he lets him go, we would not say, that worked the way I wanted it to. We would say, no, that's evil. If we see a corrupt judge who looks at an innocent person and condemns them, we would not say, that's good. We would say, no, that's bad. God is the just judge of the universe. If God simply looked at people who had broken moral law and said, no big deal, He would be that corrupt judge. And He is not. We need peace with God because we have sinned against Him. Where's the good news? How does that peace come? The good news is that God is not only a just judge, but He is a gracious and merciful Father. And He sent Jesus Christ to the earth who lived a perfect, sinless life, but He offered Himself up in a criminal's death. And He did that as a substitution for you and I. Jesus didn't hang on the cross and die on the cross because He had done something wrong. He was crucified with criminals because He was standing in for criminals. Me and you. And God, what Romans 5.1 teaches, is if we believe in that, if we believe in that work of Jesus on the cross, if we have faith in what He has done for us, it's that simple and that profound. Believe that that was done for you and you will be justified and have peace with God. What does justified mean? Not guilty. Not guilty of what you have done. Because Jesus took your punishment. God is a just judge. Just judges do not punish two different people for the same crime. If He punished Christ for your sins, He will not punish you for them. So we have peace with God. We have the blessings of God and we will live with God forever if we believe in Christ. I want to take a moment as we're talking about this, that's the power of God. That is 
Again, the greatest miracle and the greatest experience of power that you could ever take part in. To believe that, to really believe that and be saved. That is the greatest display of the power of God. I want to see miracles. I want to see God do amazing things. But church, don't be bored with people coming to know Christ. Don't set those things aside and change lives aside, chasing after the, only the external miracles. This is the power of God. The gospel to change lives, to cause people to believe. Now, I want to take a moment. Before we get to the third point, I want to take a moment and I want to focus for a second on what it means to believe. If we are justified by belief in Christ. Okay, wait a minute. What does that mean? If the pathway to peace with God and eternal life is to believe upon Jesus, okay, but what does that word mean? What does that mean in this context, to believe upon Jesus? Does that mean believe facts? To believe there's a God, to believe there's a Jesus? Is that what that means? So let's start in your, in your notes. Number one, the immeasurable power of God to those who believe, it means, number one, believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Believing it for you. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. Believing that. That's the base requirement. To believe that Jesus died and He was raised to new life. I'm not making an overstatement to say to you that the resurrection of Jesus is the one thing that our faith is based on. I'm not going to stand here and ever argue with you about the flood of Noah and the fossil records and whether or not we can prove or disprove that. Because if I could convince you there was a flood, that doesn't save you. There is one question before me and one question before you. There is one question before all of us about this faith. Did Jesus Christ die on a cross and was He raised to new life? That's the question. That's not just me saying that. The Bible says that. How many of you have ever heard Pascal's wager? Pascal's wager goes this way. I would rather... Live my life like there's a God and die and find out there's not than to live my life like there's not a God and die to find out there is. Okay? That's Pascal's wager. The Bible doesn't say that. Here's what the Bible says. I'll read it to you from the Apostle Paul. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is futile. The Bible says if Jesus was not raised from the dead, this is complete nonsense. What I'm doing right now, complete nonsense. What you're doing right now, complete nonsense. Thank God it's not. I'm getting there. If Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. The dead have no hope. Paul keeps going. If Christ has not been raised and the only hope we have is this foolish thing we've created for this life, you should pity Christians above all people. He says the opposite of Pascal's wager. Pascal says, well, at least, at least you lived a good life. Paul says you should pity people who believe in Jesus if there's no resurrection. But he goes on to say there is a resurrection. Paul goes on to say there is a resurrection, and the day he was writing it, he says, if you don't believe me, go ask all the other witnesses. There's about five or six hundred of them that have seen him raised from the dead. Go talk to them. They're still alive. 
You and I have the evidence of Scripture. We have the evidence of the Spirit of God that is in His people. And Paul goes on to say, if Christ has been raised, then when the end comes, He will deliver the kingdom to the Father and He will destroy every other rule and authority and power and all things will be subjected to Him. So here it is, church. It's the resurrection. If He wasn't raised from the dead... Don't believe because it's foolish and you're wasting your life. But if He was raised from the dead, He is Lord and He will judge the earth and you better kneel before Him now. That's how the Bible presents it. The base is believe that Christ has done this for you. Believe that He's done this for you. I don't want to just leave it at you better do this because you Christianity is about the fear of God and not being judged in our sins, but it is also about the blessings and the hope that come to us in Christ. It is the abundant life that would be ours in Christ. So you believe, believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but that you don't stop there. Listen. Demons believe Jesus was the Son of God died on a cross, and was raised to new life. So it's not enough just to believe that. You must believe it for you. So secondly, in your notes, keep believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. What I mean by that is you hold on to that. You hold on to that with your whole life. You keep believing your whole life. Look back in Romans again, Romans 5.1. Look at the second verse, Romans 5.2. Through Him, through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So here's what Paul says there. Grace and your faith in Christ has not only saved you, but your faith in Christ is giving you the grace to keep believing and keep having faith. Christian in this room, if you have come to believe in Christ and you are holding on to your faith in Him through thick and thin, that is not your doing. It is the grace of God in you. Be thankful for that. Church, believing, believing in Christ is not a one-time thing you do. I can't stress that enough where we live. Listen, if we lived in Washington State or Oregon or one of those places in our country that pretty unchurched. There's not a lot of people that grew up in church culturally. Most of us did. Most of us, like that's part of our life was growing up in church. Here's the danger we face that people don't always face in other parts of the country is many people in the South, so many in the people in the South, they believe they have peace with God because of a one-time thing they did, a one-time decision they made. That there was this one time where they believed in Him and, and re, they said a prayer. And so they, they're like, okay, I have peace with God. But the picture of, of truly believing in God, truly believing in Christ and having peace with God is not just a one-time thing you do, but it is continual in your life. You will keep believing and keep believing and keep believing. And that belief does something in you, which gets to the third point. We believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We keep believing and we live out the death and resurrection of Jesus. To believe means you live it out. Not because you earn your salvation. That's religious nonsense. You, religious rule keeping in order to have favor with God is anti-gospel. The gospel is believe and be reconciled to God through Jesus. And then because of that, your life is going to change. When something happens in your heart, it will come out of you. All right, I, I, can, I mean, we, use, we can use silly little analogies that we all get, all right? What you love in your life, people close to you know that. What you have a heart for, people in your life know that whether it is a sports team or a hobby or a person, what you love, people know that because what we love changes us. It comes out of our heart. So if we are believing upon Jesus, that will be visible. 
How will it be visible? Look over at Romans 6, so one chapter over. Romans 6, listen to verses 5 and 6. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Skip down to verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin, the the parts of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. All right, so here's, here's what Paul's saying. When you are clinging to the cross, when you are believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, something spiritual has happened in you. The power of God has crucified who you used to be, and you have been raised to this new life and this new person. Things that you used to love and want to do and have desires for, all of a sudden you go, ah, I don't enjoy that the way I used to. And 20 years ago, I'm not even going to name the show, 20 years ago, my wife and I, we were, we were fans of this, this television show. I mean, like fans. If Josie heard the music when she was really little, she would start dancing because she was so used to hearing this song and this TV show. And you guys know, if you go to Agape, I don't preach against shows and stuff like that. I'm just telling you that we loved it. About five years ago or so, I decided I was going to watch it again. I want to go through that show again. I got about halfway through the first episode, and I was like, ah, it's it's not quite as funny as it used to be. When you've been united with Christ in a death like His, God is doing something to kill those parts of you that love the world and love sin. And He is bringing alive in you what loves God and loves His kingdom. He's putting to death those things in you that want to hate people who hate you. And He's bringing to life in you God who wants you to love people no matter what. He's bringing to death in you sin and immorality, to bring life, to bring you to life, to say, I don't want to live that way anymore. When Paul says you would no longer be enslaved to sin, he's not saying you won't struggle with sin anymore. He's not saying you're not going to be tempted to sin anymore. Here's what he is saying. If you have experienced the resurrecting power of Christ in your life, sin is no longer your master. You're no longer enslaved to it. You no longer have to say like, well, that's just me. That's just, that's just what I deal with. No, you, are, you can be free from it enslaving you because of the power of God in you. Because He has broken that power in you. I said this Friday night for those who were here. There is a biblical principle that we all have to deal with. The biblical principle is, if you really want to live, you first must die. If you really want the abundant life of Christ, you must die to certain things about your life. You must die to being your own God so Jesus can be your God. You must die to worldly passions as your God so that the things of God can be yours. And church, it is a good exchange. Can you find pleasure in this earth? Absolutely. Can you find pleasure in immorality? Absolutely. If it wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't want to do it. What God is saying though, is there is greater treasure and greater pleasure and greater happiness in me if you will die to those things and live for me. So what does it mean to believe? It means you believe in the resurrection. It means you believe it for you and you hold on to it with your whole life. That one day when you stand before God, 
If he were to ask the question, which we don't have any biblical reason to believe he does, but if he were to say, on what basis are you here? You're not going to say, because I lived a good life, I preached in a church, I was a missionary, I, I loved people, I gave money. No, your one boast will be, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Jesus is my Lord and I have believed upon Him and what He did and I've believed upon that my whole life or since I became saved, whatever that looks like. And I've kept on believing and His resurrecting power was in me. And if you had six months of that or if you had 60 years of that, He was working in you that power because you believed upon Christ. And if that is you, if you believe upon Him in that way to cling the power of God in you, to cling to Christ, then here is your future. Romans 8.11 Here's your future. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit which dwells in you. One day, He will raise you from the dead. Is that unbelievable? Yes. Which is why you can only cling to it in faith. You can only cling to it if you believe in Christ. Look at this life truth in your handout. I always like to give something every week that's like a truth that you can hold on to for your life. The evidence of your future bodily resurrection is your present day spiritual resurrection. How do you know that one day you will be raised from the dead after you have passed away? How do you know one day you will be have this future bodily resurrection? The evidence of that is not because you believe some facts. It's not because you said a prayer one time. It is if you see the ongoing work of Jesus Christ in your life, dying to yourself and, and, and living to God because you believe upon Him. That is your evidence that one day you will be raised from the dead. It's been almost five months since I stood up here and preach to you two days after my mom died. And I'm living in that time that, that all of us have to go through when we've lost someone close to us, that first year of new things. This is the first Easter in... How old am I? 44 years? Allison, 44. First time in 44 years that I've spent an Easter without my mom. First time in 20 years that I haven't gotten a phone call from her telling me to go buy a ridiculous amount of candy at the grocery store and give it to her grandkids, including Cadbury eggs, which were her favorite. I miss her every single day. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't find comfort in memories. Some people do. That's good. That's just not me. My comfort is my hope in what she believed. Because what I saw in my mom was a belief in Christ that she held on to while she was sick for 30 years. Always asking God to heal her. Never seeing the total and complete healing and that disease being taken away, but never stopped doubting Jesus. And held on and clung to Him until the very end. And what I believe and know because of what I saw in her and the belief that she had in Him was not only is she right now with Him in a way that I don't understand, but the Bible says she is with Him, but one day she will be raised to new life. And my evidence of that is the spiritual resurrection that I saw in her. God's power to her was to keep her holding on. 
and keep her believing in Christ through everything. Which brings us back to our verse in John 16 and our last point. I said to you there were three things I wanted you to see about the power of God to you in Christ in this verse. One, stability amid chaos. Number two, peace with God. And number three, hope in your trials. Hope in your trials. Jesus gives good news and bad news here. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Have you ever thought about why Jesus was so quiet from the moment He was arrested until His death? The Bible says He was silent like a sheep being led to slaughter. We have very very few things that He said from the moment He was arrested until He died. Some of that was only words. He went through three different trials or between in front of three different governing authorities and they were accusing Him of things He didn't do. He's He's quiet, he's beaten, he's whipped, he's bloodied, he's quiet. He prays for those who are killing him. They don't know what they're doing, God, forgive them. He gives some instructions to those at the cross and his family, but he he doesn't really say anything. Have you ever stopped to, to, to wonder why that is? If Jesus was perfectly innocent and he was being treated as a murderer, as a criminal, why would he be silent? Why would he not defend himself? Listen, I, I'm going to be funny and kind of pointed for a moment. You and I can't even suffer the injustice of a fast food restaurant getting our order wrong without posting about it on Facebook. We're talking about someone who had never done a single thing wrong in his entire life, and he's being judged as a criminal, and he doesn't say a word. Why? I submit to you it is because He was always in control. He said before He was arrested, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He was in control from the moment He was arrested until He died. He was in control overcoming the world. He was suffering and dying to overcome the trials and tribulations that you and I face. He was overcoming the world so He could look at us and say, listen, you're going to have problems in this life. But I have overcome this life, so be encouraged. Take heart. You will never face anything that I cannot and have not already overcome. Now what does that mean though? What does it mean in the midst of your trials that God has overcome them? That Christ has overcome them? Sometimes that is going to mean this. Sometimes it's going to mean He is going to rip that trial away from you. Sometimes He's going to heal you. Sometimes He's going to remove it. Sometimes He's going to take care of it. He's going to destroy it. And He's going to show you His power that He has overcome it. Sometimes He's not going to do that. Sometimes He's going to leave the trial there. And He's going to empower you so that you are raised above it and it doesn't dictate your life. And in that trial of weakness, His power is going to be displayed because you're going to say, this thing doesn't control me. I have peace despite this. I have comfort despite despite this. I have life despite this. In either scenario, He has overcome the world. And it is very likely that both of those things will be true about you. Sometimes He will remove it. Sometimes He will empower you through it. And listen, anyone that tells you differently, they're lying to you. If someone tells you, 
God doesn't heal anymore. God doesn't take things away anymore. God doesn't display His power that way. I, I think that is untrue by the Bible. If someone tells you God always takes it away, God always heals, if He's not, then you just don't have enough faith or something's wrong with you. That is not true by this Word. He will do both. But in both cases, He is showing you, be encouraged, take heart. I've overcome the world. And church, when you go through a trial and you go through a tribulation and it doesn't seem fair and it is unjust and you are hurting, but you are clinging to Christ and believing in His power, that is the power of God in you. You are not doing that in your own, your own. You are doing it in His power. What is your hope in the midst of your trial? The last blank there, that God's goodness will prevail. That's your hope in your trial. No matter what, if He rips it from me or if He empowers me in it, either way, what I know is He has overcome this and I can look for the goodness of God in the midst of my difficulties. His goodness will prevail in this situation. For you to believe that is the power of Christ. So church, it is not always what we think, the power of God. It is sometimes comfort in the midst of chaos. It is sometimes our clinging to Jesus in belief. When the world says it's foolish and don't believe. And it is the power to believe in the goodness of God in the midst of your trials that He has overcome those. This is the power of Christ that is for those who believe. I want to end by going back to our opening prayer. It's in your handout. I want you to look at what we prayed for this morning. We prayed that God would reveal something to us today. That He would give us the spirit of revelation, of knowledge in Him. That God would teach us something this morning and reveal something to us that maybe we didn't know before. We prayed that He would do something to open our heart up. That the eyes of our heart could see something it hadn't seen before. In particular, that we might know about the hope of the calling that He has given us. That we might know the hope that is in His call to us to be saved. We prayed that we might know the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That we might know what riches God has for His people. Together, collectively, not just as individual believers living in different places, but as a group, as a church, the riches of His kindness among His people. And we have prayed that we would know how immeasurable the greatness of His power is toward us who believe that same power that He exercised in Jesus. So I want to... I want to present to you do, you, do you see that this has happened for you? Has, has God answered this? Has He revealed something that you didn't see before? Has He revealed something that you didn't know about, that you've forgotten? Has He reminded you of the hope of His calling? Has He reminded you of His glorious riches for you? Has He reminded you of the greatness of His power? And if your answer is yes, then here is my, here's my call to you. Okay, now take the next step. Don't just take that revelation and be like, oh, okay, cool. Like, no, wisdom. What do you need to do now? What do you need to do now? Is it confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and receive what He did? On the cross? Is it repent of sin because you have wandered from Him? Is it to ask Him for help to know His Word and prayer deeper and to go deeper in those things because that's life and peace and chaos? Is it you know you need to be a part of a church not because of religion but because God is grafting His people together? I don't know what it is. But I pray this in faith that it happened for you and I want to ask you to 
to take whatever that next step is. And I'm going to offer you some help. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. We're going to sing together. I've got some prayer partners. They're going to go over to my right, over in this corner. I want to ask you to sing and worship and ponder what God has talked to us about this morning, but I want to make you the offer that if you want prayer for anything that is going on in your life, if you want prayer for anything, these people will pray for you. I'm going to join them in just a moment. If you want to talk about your relationship with God, if you want to talk about your relationship with Christ, what that means or what you're worried about, we will pray with you. We will talk about those things. I'm not going to call you down. I'm not going to present you before anybody. You'll have to make a walk. It might be a long walk for you. But is it the next step? Is it the next step for you to cling a hold of what God is saying? Or maybe it's not these prayer partners. Maybe you just need to turn to somebody that's near you and say, hey, would you, would you pray with me? The only thing I'm asking you to not do is not respond if you feel God doing something in your heart. If you can see even the slightest bit of, yeah, God may have done this for me today, don't turn from that. Respond to Him. The reason it's good to talk to someone else is it kind of gets it out, kind of solidifies that, like you're not just keeping it to yourself. But respond to Him. How precious are you to Him that He gave His Son for you? How precious are you to Jesus that He gave His life for you? Respond to that love. Don't reject it. It is real. You can only believe it in faith, but if you feel the slightest bit of faith in you, grab a hold of that now. Father, may I ask in your goodness and grace, you would finish the story in our hearts that we started on Friday. Would you finish the good work that you have ordained to be done here today? I believe with all my heart, God, no one is here today by accident. It may, it may seem simple and natural, but I trust God there was a great spiritual purpose in what you have done. God, please complete that work. Father, please let Christ and His resurrecting power be in us today. God, if we need healing, if we need freedom from sin, if we need salvation, if we need to return to Christ, if we need hope and encouragement to not give up, to keep going, because something in us wants to turn and run, we're disillusioned with you and the church. God, whatever it might be, would you draw us in today and would you set us free by the power of Jesus in our hearts. Please, God, in your name we pray. Amen.